Jesus, help us. Isn't it good to be together? I don't know about you, but I needed this morning. I needed to meet with the people of God. I'm always amazed when Christians try to do Christianity outside of community. They must be more spiritual than me. I need these moments. I need the people of God around me, reminding me who I'm meant to be, who He is, what His promises are. Um, the last couple of weeks have been hard for us as a family. Some things the community is aware of, some things we haven't actually been even able to share, but it's felt like we've taken a bit of a beating. But I want to say, Table family, you are amazing. And in every moment, and I'm going to be very vulnerable and open and honest with you this morning, um, but in every moment where I've been like, I'm out, give up, not worth it, done, one of you have messaged, phoned, prayed, dropped off an almond croissant, whatever it might be. And in all of those moments, I've been so aware of not just the privilege of community, but the necessity of community. I've been aware that I, I would have been picked off long ago if the people of God hadn't been walking with me. And so I not only want to thank you, but I want to recognize in this moment that um, we will not finish our races without one another. Yeah. I've been so aware this whole week and particularly for this morning that the race that Hebrews talks about, the race that we're all on, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And the thing about a sprint is that you know, as long as your body functions as it was made to, anyone can sprint. Anyone can actually complete a 100-meter sprint. I mean, I would die trying. I, I want to be clear on that. It's not that I'm super fit and can do it easily. But the reality is everybody who can run can run 100 meters. You might be slow. You might need to stop at different points. But you'll be able to do it. It is physically possible without any training to run a 100-meter race. The thing is, it's not possible to run a marathon. Not everybody can do it. People have literally, I said I would die trying 100 meters, I wouldn't literally die. People have literally died trying to run marathons. Why? Because it's actually not physically possible for everybody. If you can run, it doesn't mean that you can run a marathon. <laughs> if you try without training, if you try without support, if you try without the right diet for months ahead of time, uh, you will most likely not complete it or you will seriously harm yourself in the attempt of completing it. It's not just a given that everybody can run a marathon. In fact, it's a given that no one can run a marathon unless they put in... It's not an issue of talent, right? If you're super talented, you might be able to run 100 meters really quickly without any training. Even if you're talented, you can't do a marathon without any training. The reason being, a marathon requires stores in your body that will have had to be accumulated through training. They don't come through talent. They come through training. And everyone who's run a marathon, I've never run a marathon, by the way. I actually have a dream of running a half marathon. I figure someone with half the leg length of normal human beings should only run half a marathon, okay? But I would love to run a half a marathon one day. <laughs> I would genuinely love to. 
maybe you should start a community group for those who want to run a half marathon. But anyway, that, that's a different story for a different time. The point being, those who've run a, a, a marathon will tell you that the, the supporters are an essential part of the process. The table set up with water bottles and bananas or uh, whatever, glucose sweets, are an essential part of the process. In fact, many people who run a marathon have actually never run that distance before. They've trained multiple miles, but there's an awareness in that moment given the support, given the cheers, given the uh, countless people around them, they'll be able to do the additional five, six miles that they've actually never done before. And I, I said this in our prayer meeting. Uh, we always pray, by the way, at 9.30 before church. I really want to encourage you all to come. That's open to everybody, and it's my favorite meeting on a Sunday. Um, but I was sharing in that that I feel like we, we're all, for one another, people who give out water bottles at the side of a race. Uh, when we come together as a community, each of us is armed with our own bottle or our own dextrose sweet or our own banana. And we're witnessing one another's races. And one of the things about being community is being able not just to attend church and go, who's got my water bottle? Don't you know what I need this morning? But rather recognizing coming out from our own stores and saying, hey, I see you on your race. You must be really tired. Can I give you a water bottle and say, you can do it. Keep going. There's more that God's got for you, right? That's part of what we've got to do for each other because that's part of being the, the essential call of being the people of God. But I'm aware we're running a marathon. And um, so much of my message this morning, I, I want that imagery of a marathon to be on your mind and in front of you. This week, I want you guys to really be thinking about what it means for your own race because you just can't wake up one morning and decide you want to run a marathon. There's so much that is required to walk in before the marathon in order to be able to complete the marathon. But I believe God wants to give us everything we need for the race that he set us on. We're going to talk about that. This morning's sermon, if you're waiting for a title, uh, I've changed title about 50 times since last night, but I'm going to call it Get Ready to Change the Future. And I want to look at the story of Elijah this morning, this last week. I want to tell you a few things that might shock you or disturb you. Or you might be like, oh, by now we know, Katia, this is so normal and expected. Julian said to me this morning, you're so predictable, even in your unpredictability, you're so predictable. Like, almost nine years of marriage, he now knows the rhythms of his crazy wife. And this is how it goes. And I, I want to be really clear with you that we get a beating after beating after beating. I've got stamina for, for a few. I don't know, once I feel super bruised, I'm like, okay done kill me now i'm so over it have a huge emotional meltdown can't handle it anymore i hate god i hate everybody i don't even believe god exists you're like this is our pastor this is scary don't worry i come out the other side that's part of the marathon by the way the stores kick in okay but we'll talk about that in a second hey everybody burn them all jesus that's <laughs> you're laughing <laughs> You're laughing. Totally. Calling fire from heaven. I totally relate to James and John who said to Jesus with those awful Samaritans over there, shall we call fire from heaven? That's me. I'm calling fire from heaven. Kill them all. This is wonderful. Let the end come. 
I'm only half joking. I want to say this to you because I think it's so important that we talk about our humanity. I don't stand up here because somehow my life is floating above all the pain and the suffering. Because I want you to know that when you're having a moment of I hate God, and if you haven't had that moment, I'm sure at some point it will come, or maybe you are more spiritual than me and that's totally fine. But if you ever reach that place, that's not the end. That's not your destiny out the window. Because there's stores that are going to kick in. That's why we do what we do. That's why we meet together. That's why we encourage each other. We're constantly feeding into each other's stores so that in that moment, the training kicks in. And you're able to weather that storm. And so this, this week, as I was aware, as I'm lying on my bed crying, saying, kill me now, I'm also aware of the practical schedule of the church, and I'm down to preach. And I'm like, ah, and I have to preach. What am I going to say? And I thought, okay, who in the Bible do I feel most like right now? And this is why it's so important to read scripture all the time. Because in those moments, God's going to remind you of someone in scripture who's walked your journey. And it's really helpful to find that person because you feel seen and known in your brokenness. But you've got a story from start to finish. See, in that moment of your brokenness, you're in the middle. So it's really helpful to hunt down someone who you know the start all the way through to the finish. It steadies you in the middle. So who in the Bible says, kill me now? Elijah. So... I'm preaching from Elijah this morning because I feel like me and Elijah are going to be really good friends in heaven. We're going to hang out loads. We're going to talk about all those moments where we lay down screaming, kill me now, because this incredible prophet did that. Do you know how encouraging that was for me this week? As I was like, I'm rubbish. I can't do anything. I've got nothing left. I was like, the prophet, the prophet, the one who... God sends to meet with Jesus in the transfiguration. This is like the prophet of prophets. He had a moment just like me. And then he went on to change the future. And so we're going to read one verse. And then we're going to do something that some of my favorite shows do. But I'll talk about that in a second. 1 Kings 19, 15. The Lord said to him, said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. I want to say and suggest that this, these two verses that I read are the pinnacle of Elijah's whole ministry. Because up until this point, all he's been doing is dealing with everything in the present. Up until this point, he's just dealing with the nonsense in Israel. In this moment, he gets commissioned to change the future. In this moment, suddenly, everything of the landscape of Israel, of the surrounding nations, is radically altered because of these two verses. Elijah is famous for a lot of the things that happened before then. None of them, none of them are 
anywhere near as significant as this moment and what follows. We don't often talk about what follows, but that's because we're so attracted to something that's spectacular rather than what's fruitful. This is the moment that isn't about spectacular, but is all about fruit. This is the fruit of his ministry. Now, I want to do what my favorite shows do, which is you see this crazy moment on a show right at the beginning that you're like, what's happening? And then it goes three days earlier. And suddenly it rewinds to what happened. And you're like, oh, thank goodness, because I have no idea how they got there. Let's see how Elijah got there. We're, right, we're starting right at the beginning of his story. And I'm just going to pick my way through. If you want notes, the, this is a two-point sermon. You're human. God can deal with that. If you want to know how to change the future, those are the only things you need to bear in mind. You are very much human, and God is really okay with that. And he's going to use your humanity to change the future. But Elijah's ministry starts off so very promising. 1 Kings 17. Elijah, I'm I'm not going to read the verses. I'm going to paraphrase for you as we go, because if not, it will be very long. But Elijah starts off going to the king of Israel and confronting him. Like, you're straight in. This is a guy who's like, I don't need any warm up. I'm good. Thank you. He goes ahead to Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Wow. Good start. Really good because it actually happens. Wow, okay, so Elijah, he, he starts with this incredible word to the king of Israel. He proclaims drought. And then God comes to him and says, you need to go from here and hide yourself by the brook. Now, when I, often when I'm preparing a sermon, I do for myself, I do a little bit of a timeline of whoever I'm preaching from so that I've got in my head their story, the, the complete picture And I started doing that for Elijah. I started reading from 1 Kings 17, as I've just done. And the story keeps going into 2 Kings when he actually doesn't die, but gets taken up to heaven. It's pretty remarkable, actually. And I I started writing the bits that he's famous for. So prophesying drought to Ahab, it comes to pass. Uh, Killing the prophets of Baal, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Fire comes from heaven, consumes everyone. He slaughters the rest. It's really cool. Then all of these, I'm, I'm going through the synopsis of Elijah's life, and I'm just writing these down. You can come and see it on my lovely piece of paper if you want. And as I'm doing it, I felt God say to me, see, that's your problem. That's why you get so frustrated. What do you mean? So you're only writing half the story. You're writing the high points. You're writing what he's famous for. The problem is that's not what he walked through. That's actually a tiny bit of his story. Those were the end point of such a beating that he wished he didn't have that in his story. Like we're going to meet Elijah in heaven and we're going to talk to him and he's going to say to you, I wish I didn't have to prophesy drought. Why? Because that drought dries up the river that he was reliant on to drink from. It's a summer of surprises. (laughs) Too soon? Maybe. Summer of surprises, our house floods. What's interesting about that, he did say good surprises, just so you know. But the point is, Elijah's own ministry hurts him. He prophesies drought. Then God says, go hide yourself. Hey, that's his story. He, his ministry meant that he had to go into hiding. We don't write that. We don't write a synopsis of Elijah's life. He has to confront a sociopath. 
Then he has to go into hiding. Then his own ministry hurts him because he has to rely on a brook to drink from and the brook dries up. Then he ha- God says to him, don't worry, go to a widow. Okay, great. She's going to have food and water for me. Oh, this journey has been long. He gets to the widow. Turns out she doesn't have food or water. What's wrong with God? What is up with you? Like you've just sent me to a brook that's dried up because you incidentally told me to prophesy drought. Then you've sent me to a widow. She doesn't even have food. So now I have to dig deep and prophesy a miracle so that we can even get food. Why didn't you just send me to someone who has food? I have a great idea, God. Next time, send me to someone who, right? Are you following me? His story isn't fun. Oh, wow. The miracle of the food for the widow. Yeah, that was the end high point of what would have been exhausting for a man who's just come on a journey, having been literally famished for water. He gets there and she's like, I've got nothing to give you. Like, how much disappointment would you feel in that moment? How much of your questioning would be, does God even know what he's doing? Like, is he holding the map up upside down? Because where he's sending me doesn't make sense. Then it's beautiful. The food multiplies. Wonderful. Amazing. The woman's lo- the widow loves him. This is great. The widow's son dies while Elijah's there. Elijah's like, hey, what is happening? We, we read the, the synopsis version, the, the version that's like the summary version, which is he raises the son from the dead. Don't you think he wished the son had never died? Don't you think that as he's walking that journey, he's not thinking this will be a cool story later. He's thinking, this is horrible. I came to this woman's house. We had to figure out a miracle for food. And the fruit of me being here is that he dies. He understands that he's at a core of warfare and people around him are being hurt by him. Do you think this was fun for him? And then God says to him, okay, this is great. Now I want you to go and show yourself to Ahab. No, I don't want to go back to that crazy king. But he has to go again to confront the crazy king. And then not only is he confronting the king, but he gathers all these prophets who are literally like satanic worshipers. This is gathering all the people who you would be frightened to be in the room all together. And he's having this moment, he's not levitating above the ground thinking this is great. Every moment of it is a battle in his head of this, is this going to work or not? And then it works. Oh my goodness, God proves himself powerful, incredible. This is a high point. We all love it. It's a beautiful moment. What's the fruit of it? Nothing at all. What happens is, in chapter end of chapter 18. Oh no, let's, let's actually talk about the next thing first. It's incredible. The prophets are killed. It's amazing. God wins, right? That's the story at that moment. God wins. And then Elijah says to Ahab, rain is coming. Go. Rain is coming. Great. Then he goes and prays and he says to his servant, go and see if there's a cloud. Does a cloud instantly form? No. He has to pray, keep praying. And we go, oh, it's so wonderful that he was persevering. Do you think he was having fun in the persevering? This man is exhausted by now. He's had such a beating that it's like, God, can't you do this faster? Like, why are you doing this to him? I have to say, the longer that I know God, the bigger my mystery box gets. I wish I could tell you something different. 
also bigger gets my miracle pile, also gets bigger the beatings pile that I've got. All of it grows. But I wish that I could tell you, oh, you just somehow get such an ability to understand the solutions to the mysteries. No, you don't. Poor Elijah, he's exhausted. God could have done it immediately. He prays and the cloud comes down. No, he has to keep praying. None, none of it is, is this a fun journey for him. And then at the end of all of this, rain has come. God has proven himself with such power as the winner for Israel. Do you know what happens? Ahab tells Jezebel, his wife, what has happened. You would think this is a great repentance moment, right? This is amazing. Like God's proven his power. Surely the people of Israel are going to turn, which was the whole point, Elijah thought, of his ministry. What happens? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill him. That's the fruit. The fruit of all of the prophets being silenced, God proving himself all-powerful. The fruit is nothing. That's, that's what Elijah sees. I've done all of this thinking that at some point Israel would turn. All that's happened is Jezebel now has her sights on me to kill me. And that's when Elijah has his meltdown. He's done. It's like, I am out. Ministry sucks. I love pastoring this community. Those words have never come from my mouth. And you know what's interesting? For the first time in 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah moving on from a place without the word of the Lord. Up until that point in the story, everywhere he's gone, everything he's said, everything he's done has been as a result of the word of the Lord came to Elijah. But what happens is, 1 Kings 19. I, I'm just giving you the build up to that moment where he changes the future, right? So far, such a cheerful story. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. She's still an idol worshiper. She's not convinced by the act of power. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, the priests that Elijah had killed by this time tomorrow, then he was afraid. The first time, he's confronted Ahab. That's how he started his ministry. He's confronted hundreds of horrible, evil priests. But it's this word from Jezebel that finally brings him to breaking point. He was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. Such a really sad moment watching the unraveling of the great prophet of all prophets. And he leaves his servant in Beersheba, which is a village, and then he himself keeps going into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Elijah, I see you, saying, it is enough. Done. O Lord, take away my life. Interesting that in that moment, his lowest point, his voice, what he's asking is actually coinciding with what the enemy is threatening him with. I want to say this because in that moment when you're there, you're not going to have the brain power to figure that out. Like your emotions are just everywhere and that's okay because this is all part of my first point, which is, hi, you're human. But it's important at some point to be able to process afterwards that in that lowest point, in that moment when you're broken, 
what's happening is that actually the enemy is drawing you to say exactly what he's threatening you with. The beautiful thing is that God overcomes that moment. But it's important to recognize that so that at some point you can pick yourself up from where you've been. In that moment, he's run away from Jezebel, but he's actually asking for exactly that which he's run away from. He's totally unraveling. And he says, for I am no better than my father's. Okay, so two things here that I want us to write in our notes. You're human. You're human means make sure that you pay attention to the full story. The human story is not 10 highlights. The human story is 90% walking from one glory to another glory. That word to, who was speaking on that? Was it David? Yeah. Okay, we had a guest speaker here a while ago and he was speaking to that. He takes you from glory to glory. We're all doing the summary of the glory, glory, glory. The two is actually much longer than the glory elements, okay? That's what it means to be human. Use scripture to encourage yourself with that. Don't just skim over scripture, finding the high point stories that you memorized years ago. Read scripture, walk with these people. It will encourage you in the two moment of your life, which is going to be the biggest portion of your life. You're human. Full story important. You're human. You're not exempt from suffering. He's so upset at the injustice of us all, and he says, for I am no better than my father's. What was he hoping for? He was hoping for glory, 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 glory. And in this moment, it dawns on him, I'm just not exempt. I turn out to be as human as everybody else. I turn out to walk in same brokenness, same hurts, same disappointments as everyone else. Some of you are looking at me like, wow, this sermon is a real downer. Someone needs to get this woman like some help. I want to say, I'm really not trying to depress us. I'm trying to fortify us. Because we have to understand, we're just not exempt. We're going to see revival in this city. I would not have come back this morning if I had any doubt on that. We're going to see revival. We're going to see hundreds, if not thousands of people saved. I have no doubt of that. But we're not exempt from suffering because of that. It, they go hand in hand. The suffering on the cross leads to the resurrection and an empty tomb. They go hand in hand. And I'm telling you this because this strengthens you in the moment when you're in suffering. That it, you haven't done something wrong. That it actually shouldn't be a surprise. Aaron preached on this a while back in terms of the promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. I'm going to tell you, memorize that verse. When your life is awful, tell yourself that verse. Do you know why I find it so encouraging is that that moment isn't a surprise to Jesus and he told us it would come. It will happen. No one is exempt from that. So know that you're human. Tell yourself the full story. Recognize you're not exempt from suffering. But you know what's beautiful in his humanity is that he then lies down and sleeps and then an angel. I love that God cares for him in his humanity. God wakes him up with an angel who's feeding him. The angel touches him, says, arise and eat. He looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. The angels feed him. He ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and second time touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. 
do you know what? Your marathon, it's too great for you. It really is. The destiny that God has for you, it's too great for you. It's too big. It is too much weight for your shoulders. What God has called me to in this city, it is too much for me. Why? Because I'm human. And what he's calling us to is impossible. It's too much for a human being to bear. This is so important for us to fully grasp, to fully absorb. Why? Because then we invite the presence of God to fortify us. Then we recognize that we're walking with a God who isn't telling us, run faster. What's wrong with you? He's saying, this really hurts, doesn't it? I know you're human. This is too much for you. Let me fortify you. He brings him bread and water so that he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. Now that's a meal I want. This is giving us an understanding that you are human, but God can work with that. You are human, but God wants to sustain you in that. It's so important for me not to rely on my strength to see my destiny come to pass. It is too great for me. There's so many of us waiting for the miracles, but we don't have time to read our Bibles. You got to eat the food. If not, you'll die in the desert. You got to eat it. He's giving you cake and water tea. I love that it's cake. That makes me happy. He's giving you cake and water. Some of us are like, I'm too busy to pray. Listen, your destiny is too great for you. You're trying to do it without praying and reading and fasting. Your beatings will come. They will. I'm sorry, but they will. It's too great for you. you got to eat the food. Like we would think he's insane if he was like, you know what though? It's time for me to bounce. I've been here in the wilderness too long. I'm, you know what? I'll just take a quick bite for the road. It's like how my kids eat breakfast. It drives me crazy. Like just finish the thing. Too busy. Got to go play. And then five minutes later, mom, I'm hungry. I did give you an entire plate of breakfast. It would be crazy. We'd be like, what's he thinking? That's so dumb. He start. why are we doing that then? So easy to see how foolish it is for him. But we're not eating and drinking the feast that's laid out for us. And then we don't have what it takes to walk through the whole journey. I want to tell you, you're human. It's too great for you. Eat and drink. Eat and drink. Okay, let's get to some happy points. <laughs> So he'll care for you in your frailty. He can work with that. He cares for him in his frailty. None of this is about like Elijah, you need to memorize more verses. None of that. He's just dealing with him physically, providing for him. And then we get to this bit and we're almost back to where we started. But Elijah, he comes to a cave and he lodges in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, now I love this because this is so me. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What's he saying? Serving you sucks. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm not pleased with how things have turned out. I'm not impressed, God. You call me to do all this stuff. It's been really hard. I've kept going. I've kept serving you. The brook dried up. The woman has no food. The sun dies. The prophets come and they're all against. I've done all of it because I was hoping I had my faith fixed on. They will repent. None of them repented. I'm done. That's what he's saying. The whole speech is, I don't like you very much. That's what the speech is. What are you doing here? I don't like you. That's what the speech is. And I love the kindness of God. See, this is where God can deal with our humanity. Because he meets with Elijah in his anger and disappointment. He encounters him in that place. He's not trying to convince him otherwise. He's not saying to him anything that Elijah actually knows deep down. He just needs a moment to say, all of this is horrible. It's not fun. I'm so tired. You know, God is okay with your anger. He's okay with your honest conversations. In fact, the thing that will kill you the most is not speaking out what is going on internally. There's too many Christians who are um, trying to be super spiritual in how they process their emotions with God. As if he doesn't know already. Like as if you don't say it, he won't know you're disappointed or annoyed with him. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he knows. <laughs> he knew it was coming. You don't need to be religious in that moment. It will kill you. It will slowly sap away faith and joy and you'll find yourself two years later deconstructing everything. Why? I can go back to two years ago where the hurt came in and you thought the best thing was to just pretend it wasn't there. You've got to deal with it. The prophet of prophets got so irritated with God that he told himself, I'm done with this, serving him sucks. It's really important for us to learn from that, to recognize God is not offended with your emotions. You've got to bring them out. You've got to allow him to meet you within those emotions. If not, they will be a poison in your heart that will eventually be your undoing down the road. <laughs> You've got to process it. Don't allow that gangrene to stay there. It will kill you. And then God says to him, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. So you can see that Elijah still believes. This is where his training kicks in. Right? He's saying this stuff. The emotions are coming out. But you see a deeper level of faith because he bothers to do it. Like he's still in the game, even as he's saying, I hate the game. And he goes out. And this strange thing happens. Behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore the mountains, broke it in pieces and rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. All that time, Elijah's just been standing there. He's waiting. See, he's got enough history with God to know where God is not. He's got enough history to recognize, nope, that's not him. Nope, that's not what he meant. Nope. But when he hears the whisper, Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. I asked God, what were you doing there? Like, that's really weird. Why did you do that? I'm sure there are a hundred answers to it. But what I 
what I thought in the moment as I was trying to process this is that God is a really good dad and he's trying to reset Elijah. See, as a parent, I'll be able to tell you there are moments where your kids just get so overwhelmed by their emotions that you need to snap them out of it. You need a wind, earthquake, fire moment that totally resets them because they can't do it for themselves. It's You need to shake them free from the noise that has been overwhelming them internally. You're literally trying to drown out what's going on inside so that they'll be able to walk free from it. I feel like non-violently. <laughs> Don't ever shake your child, please. <sighs> yes, non-violent. No one's talking about actually physically shaking a child, just to clarify. You understand what I'm saying? In this moment, God is doing an absolute reset for Elijah because Elijah can't do it for himself. I'm sure there's lots of other things, okay? This is just from a parent perspective, I recognize what's going on here, which is this is God trying to like, whoa, let's, let's clear the decks here. Let's totally change what's happening. And the whisper repeats the first question. What, what tells you that Elijah's first answer wasn't good enough? <laughs> when God repeats himself, it's not because he didn't hear you. It's because he's trying to get you to think again. Unfortunately, Elijah doesn't quite get that. And he's stubborn just like me. So when God, having done all of that reset, says to him, let's try it again, sweetheart. What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm really trying to connect with your heart. I am doing my very best to be patient through your tantrum. And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord. And he says exactly the same thing that he said before. Okay, the reset did not work. He is still annoyed and he is not changing his mind. Again, what I love about God is that he kind of goes, okay, we're done with that conversation. Like, I'm not going to fight you. He's actually wrong. God does enter that in right at the end because there's hundreds of prophets. He's not the only one. But God's not like, we're going to debate this. He, he recognizes his humanity. Again, I want to tell you, very simple message. You're human. God can work with that. In your lowest moment, God is not going to have a theological debate with you. And I want to say to you, don't surround yourself with Christians who will. What you don't need in that lowest moment is a theological debate. What you do need is faith-filled Now, hear me and don't misunderstand me. What you don't need is Christians who don't have any faith, have no radical belief in God to come and comfort you in that moment. They will just sink you further into what is a distraction in your destiny, okay? But also what you don't need is Christians who only have a theoretical understanding of scripture but haven't walked a journey of suffering. So in that moment, they can have a theological debate with you about why you're technically incorrect when you say that God has left you or when you say that you're done or when you say that ministry stuck. What, what I didn't need this week was someone saying to me, let's open up the Bible and understand why you're wrong when you say ministry isn't fun. Okay. It wasn't an intellectual problem that I was having. I can quote the verses too. It was a heart deep with disappointment. You don't meet that with arguments intellectually. 
You meet that with a bottle of water. You don't stand on the side with marathon runners who've hit the wall, who've just run 20 miles. By the way, further than you've ever run before because what I understand is the people who are having theological debates have got far too much time to have intellectual argument because they haven't walked a journey of crazy faith anyway. So it's easy for them to say, let's just argue when someone who's walked that far in a race will understand you don't need an intellectual debate. What you need is someone to give you water. You're dying of thirst in this moment. You don't need someone on a marathon runner to say, well, you know, it is technically possible for you to keep running the next six miles. It's not a technical. That's why Job is such an interesting book to read. A man who's gone a journey that none of them had. The friends sitting there telling them they're in, they were technically correct. But God condemns all of their answers. Why? Because you can say the right thing at the wrong time and therefore be wrong. In the moment of someone suffering, don't have a technical theological debate. Give them water. How do you do that? You pray with them. How do you do that? You don't give them cheesy Christian catchphrases. But you sit and you say with them, I- I'm going to walk this part of your journey with you. What do you need practically right now? Do you know how many people in this community did this for us this week? What do you need practically? People messaging us to say, I'll move out of my home so that you guys can come and stay in my home. That's a bottle of water. That's not a, you know, God provides. We know that the technical name of the Lord is God my provider. Having, right? No, here's my bottle of water. It's a practical, let me walk with you in this leg of the journey because I believe God for your next leg of the journey, right? So don't spend time with the faithless. They'll kill you too. But also don't spend time with the religious who just want to give you an intellectual answer. Spend time with the faith-filled because they know the beating that comes in a faith journey. So they'll know what you need in that moment. Prayer, speaking in tongues over you. Some level of processing their faith journeys when you ask for it. I had a really great moment with Julian this week when I I was genuinely, I mean, I'm joking about it, but I, I was really low. And I, we were lying on the bed and I was crying and saying to him, I'm, I'm actually scared by how low I am. And I said to him, please, just remind me how you process. Like, tell me a bit of your processing here. I need to feed off your processing. He didn't quote verses at me, but here is a man who's walked multiple faith adventures He's not pulling from theoretical knowledge. He's saying, this is what I've walked through. Gosh, I know this moment is hard. Obviously, we're walking this together, right? But he's pulling on other moments because he was finding that moment to be less painful for him. Find those people, true people of faith, who understand the beating. Because God will meet you in your anger. He'll help you process in that moment if you're surrounded by the right people. And this is when we get to, God says to him, go return on your way. The whole conversation shifts because God's not interested in the intellectual debate. He's like, he's, he's got what he needs. Like he, God knows. And there's moments with your children. Well, you know, 
Like, okay, this conversation is done. Like they might still be like saying, no, I disagree with you. But you can see the shift has come. They've remembered who they are, that their family loves them, they're okay, they're moving on. And then you shift the conversation. You know, God doesn't like harbor bitterness against you for how badly you did 10 minutes ago. I find that incredibly encouraging. Do you know that my authority to come and speak to you this morning isn't hindered by my complete emotional meltdown three days ago? Why? Because God doesn't harbor that against me. Because God sees the deepest thing that's true about you. He knows that in the moment as you're shouting and having a tantrum against him, he sees actually the training, the resources that have gone beneath it. He knew three days ago that if he asked me to do anything crazy, I would just do it. You can be more than one thing at, a, at the same time. The important thing is what is most true about you. Because I can tell you in one breath, I love him and I hate him. Right? I can tell you that. Which one is most true about what I believe? You can cut me open. And there will be moments where I say things that actually I don't really believe. But what I will bleed is love for him. What is most true about you? This is what I'm saying about sprint versus marathon. Any talented or able-bodied person can run a sprint. But it's history that allows you to run a marathon. That's when what is most true about you kicks in. They say that marathon runners have a moment around mile 20. Up until that point, they can do pretty well. Most, you know, most people who've done some level of training Sounds horrible to me. Two hours in. Two hours is usually the mark. And do you know why it is? It's because at two hours, for most people, your body runs out of all of the carbohydrate fuel. It means that your last minute, 24 hours of fueling for a marathon at two hours, it's gone. What happens afterwards is your body switches to burning fat, which is what's come six months before it. And suddenly what's happening is you are digging deep into stores and reserves that actually were not relevant in the immediate moment, but are now actually incredibly relevant. So many of us as Christians, we are not taking time to build reserves in the time of plenty. And then the time where the battle comes, we're like, last minute prayer needs to happen now. I've been fasting since 8 a.m. this morning. That counts for four hours of fasting. I'm good. No, 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 no. That's your carbohydrate store. You'll be able to go for two hours. You're going to hit a wall because what came before that is what's going to see you through the race. What is most true about you? What is most true in your belief system kicks in at that point? This is why a life of faith is a marathon, not a sprint. Most of us can do the sprint. But it's at mile 20 when I think, who else in the Bible said they wanted to die? See, if I hadn't read all the Bible several times, I wouldn't be able to know in that moment. <laughs> we laugh about it, but that's what's kept me alive this last few days. Like we can't, we can't minimize how important it is in that moment to be able to call to mind things that will keep you alive. It's too late at that point for me to be like, oh, quickly, let me find a verse that's going to help me. It will sustain you too short. You need deeper reserves. 
But in that moment, your reserves kick in and he steadies you for destiny. See what happens that moment of actually his breaking point, the unraveling of a prophet becomes the springboard for him to stand up, start anointing and appointing, totally changing a landscape for generations to come. His greatest moment of fruitfulness happens after he wants to die because the battle got too hard. I want to say something to you, Table Boston. We'll have these moments individually. We'll have these moments corporately. But I believe God has called us to change the future. We're not here in this city just to clean up a few Baal prophets over here and deal with Ahab and his drought over here. No, no, no. God has called us to stand up, anoint a point, change the landscape. You get to that point in the marathon after mile 20. But you get there. And for each of us, your destiny is nothing short than changing the future. You might be at mile one in your journey. You might be at mile 20. You might be further on. I celebrate all of your races and all the different places you're in, every single one of us was created to change the future. And this is what we see Elijah stepping into after his lowest point. Let's stand together. I know this has been maybe a strange sermon, but I hope it's a fortifying one. You're human. God can work with that. It's actually very simple. I don't know where you are in your race. Some of you need to be reminded that you're human. Some of us are trying to be more spiritual than human. <laughs> We're trying to somehow become robots rather than human beings. Some of us are denying our emotions to the point of breaking because we're not processing things, because we think God doesn't know how to handle our emotions. He's okay with your emotions. The question is, are you? He's okay with you being human. The question is, are you? Are you trying to be something other than what he made you to be, which is human? You're a human being. You're going to reach breaking point at some point. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm there. I hear you. I see you. But you know, even the greatest supposed heroes, everyone has a breaking point. The question is whether you have one. The question is what happens at that point. Some of you are, are recognizing I don't eat or drink. I'm on a starvation diet and then I'm wondering why I'm completely battered and have no reserves. I want to tell you, it's not too late. Start eating and drinking. Open up your Bible, five, ten minutes every day. You'll find the more you eat, the greater your appetite. You'll find that you start craving scripture. You'll find that you're asking, what more can I learn? Who else can I glean from in these words? Holy Spirit, come and fill me. That's what drinking is. Holy Spirit, fill me up. I'm going to tell you, Holy Spirit filling you every single day isn't just about what will be fruitful that day. It's about what will be fruitful five years from now when you're facing another battle. And it's five years worth of your body being filled with His presence that gives you the reserves to stand in that battle. We see great men and women of God doing amazing things and we think I want to be like that and yet I can't wake up 20 minutes earlier to read my Bible. You can't be like that. It's not just talent. It's not just anointing. 
It's reserves in training. God is gracious. He comes through for us in multiple ways. I'm not denying that. But it is also true in the same breath that those who build their reserves are the ones who run the marathon the best. Both can be true at the same time. And so some of you, and I'm saying this to myself, God, I want to read my Bible more. I need to read my Bible more. Bleary-eyed or not in the morning, I have to read more. I need more reserves. I've pretty much gone through them this time around. I'm going to need to build some more. Eat and drink, but also eat and drink in the, in the physical. Steph made us an incredible meal this week. She said, I was reminded of Psalm 23. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The best thing we can do right now is feast. And we had the most phenomenal Italian feast and it was glorious. Sometimes it's the most spiritual thing that you can do. Phone faith-filled people. Phone those who have been on adventures of faith. Stephanie has walked adventures of faith. She knows what I need in that moment. It's not, Katya, let's dissect the the law in Deuteronomy to help you walk better. It's sit down and eat. You need to eat right now. Let me feed you. Holy Spirit. Give us stamina for a marathon. Fortify your people. And give us faith to see the other side. Give us faith for the changing, the future moment. Some of you, this is a moment of commissioning for you. It's time to get up from that cave. He's had a lovely conversation with you. Now it's time for you to recognize, go and anoint, go and appoint, go and call out what needs to be changed. Go and speak, go and declare, go and prophesy. It's time to give away what you have. It's time to raise up Elisha's. It's time to rebuild and then to completely change landscapes. And for some of us in this moment, this is a commissioning for you. Enough time in that cave. Wake up, get going. There's more to be done. It's time to see fruit now. We trust what you're doing with us. I thank you that you are able to care for us in our frailty, that you're able to meet with us and eager to meet with us in our anger and disappointment, even when it's directed straight at you, even if you've, when you've done nothing wrong. But you're okay to absorb that. But I thank you that you're then able to steady us for destiny. I pray, Holy Spirit, steady this community for destiny, for changing the future. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.